Well, hello, everyone. We are again engaging in our study of the Gospel of John. We are the last week in May, and hopefully at the end of next week, we'll get good news from our governor who will decide to rescind the stay-at-home orders. We are hopeful that we'll be able to meet in church in the very, very near future, in the next coming weeks, and we'll be giving you more information about that as a final decision and plan has been determined. So today we want to open up our Bibles again to John chapter 12, and we're going to continue on with the triumphant entry and a message I've titled, Here Comes the King. And so as a way of reminder, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. This was the most astounding miracle that Jesus had performed. It captured the hearts and the minds of the people, unlike anything he had ever done before. This took place at Bethany of Judea, which is just a short distance away from Jerusalem. After this miracle, Jesus took himself away from the area and spent a few weeks with his disciples. He has come back to the area, as we looked at last week. He's had a dinner that was attended by Mary and Martha and Lazarus and some unknown other guests. And this likely took place at the house of Simon the leper. And we get that information based upon the other gospel accounts of Matthew and Mark, who seem to identify the same anointing by Mary with a perfume. So as we continue this now, we are going to look at the triumphant entry that Jesus is about to make into Jerusalem. And while John doesn't necessarily specify this, many believe that it is after the anointing that Judas makes his agreement with the Pharisees to betray Jesus for the 30 pieces of silver. And this is chronologically what Matthew indicates in his gospel. So let's look at John chapter 12. We're going to read verses 12 through 19 today and look at what God's word says to us as it relates to Jesus's triumphant entry into Jerusalem. So verse 12, on the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Verse 16, these things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and they had, and that they had done these things, done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the whole world has gone after him. As we look at this passage of Scripture, we're going to look at five elements of this triumphant entry as Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem for the very last time. Number one, it came at the proper time. We see this in verse 12a, on the next day. So the day following the dinner that was held in Jesus' honor in Bethany of Judea, probably at Simon the leper's home, possibly a dinner that was thrown by the village, we see that on the next day, this is Monday, 
after this miracle, excuse me, after this dinner in Bethany. So when Jesus began his public ministry, he had been in Jerusalem on two other Passover occasions, as well as the other two annual feasts that were prescribed for all Jews to attend who were able to do so. So this third Passover that is mentioned in the Gospel of John, there isn't anything special about it. There isn't any significance to this individual Passover that would separate it from all of the other Passovers or the previous two that Jesus had attended. The only difference is this is the Passover that was God's predetermined plan that would that would bring a conclusion to Jesus's ministry and then consummate God's eternal plan of redemption. The only thing different about this Passover is it came in God's time. This annual Passover feast, like most other annual Passover feasts, was only going to be different because it was God's preordained time for Jesus to become the sacrifice that would satisfy God's eternal plan of redemption. Throughout Jesus' public ministry, he had taught as none other had. He had performed signs and wonders and miracles as none other could. He proved that he was who he claimed to be. He had confronted the religious leaders with their hypocrisy and with the poor way that they shepherded the people. And so very early in Jesus' ministry, the religious leadership was offended by him and sought to rid themselves of this unwanted intrusion. And in fact, we have learned that they had made several unsuccessful attempts to end Jesus' life and his Influence on the people. So we read in Luke chapter 4, verses 28 and 29, and all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, these claims that Jesus made about himself. And verse 29 says, They got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him off the cliff. So early in Jesus' ministry, we see the opposition that was going to come against him by the religious leaders. In Matthew twelve fourteen, it says the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. In John chapter 8, verse 59, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So these miracles coincided with what the Pharisees thought were a violation of the Sabbath, even though they could not refute the miracles that Jesus performed, they rejected him as the miracle worker, they rejected him as the self-proclaimed Son of God, the promised Messiah, and now with the raising of Lazarus, their animosity had been significantly amped up as Jesus continued to do what was unthinkable, and as the crowds of people were gathering around him... But even their anger was not what was going to bring about the end of Jesus' ministry, the end of Jesus' life. It was not the plan of man. It was not the enough is enough mentality that the religious leaders had. It was simply God's time. Jesus had walked among the earth. He created 
in this public ministry for some three and a half years, and now the time has come. In fact, we learn in the Gospel of Matthew that the religious leaders preferred not to carry out their death sentence upon Jesus during the Passover because they feared the people. Matthew 26, verses 3 through 5, we read this, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, excuse me, but they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. So while it may not have been their intended plan to rid themselves of the problem of Jesus, but it was in fact God's time for this to take place during the Passover, which was rich with symbolic meaning as the Jews understood the Passover to be a celebration of their physical deliverance from bondage to Egypt. And God would intend for Jesus to be offered up as the propitiation for the sins of the world to coincide with him being a spiritual deliverer, not only for the nation of Israel, but for all the world. So his entry into Jerusalem is at the proper time. It is in God's time, and nothing is going to interfere with God's time. Now, there's a way that we can be reminded of this as we go through our own challenges and our own hardships in this world. God has a plan. God has a timetable for his plan to be enacted in our lives. We can't rush it. We shouldn't rebel it. But we should simply submit ourselves to it and let it come in God's pre-appointed time, accomplishing God's predetermined plan for us. So we see now the second key element of this account of Jesus' triumphant entry, and that is this. It was joined by passionate people. As we continue in verse 12 and into verse 13, it says, A large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him, and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, it was mentioned previously that at these annual feasts, there would be an excess of a million people who would come from all over the world to Jerusalem to be a participant in these feasts. And so this large crowd is overflowing the city of Jerusalem. And so we learn from the other gospel accounts some detail that isn't fulfilled for us by John. And so as Jesus leaves Bethany of Judea on his way to Jerusalem, he travels across Mount of Olives down the eastern side, but he probably wasn't alone. There was probably still a significant crowd that was in Bethany of Judea who wanted to see what Jesus was going to do, and they were likely following him because of the report of Lazarus being raised from the dead as he made his way back into Jerusalem. So there's this crowd that is following him, but there's also this crowd of people who are in Jerusalem that have heard about Lazarus being raised from the dead and likely have heard that Jesus is now on his way. So you have the crowd that is following him, and you also have this crowd that is going out to meet him, 
And Matthew tells us that as Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem, not Jerusalem yet, that the people are throwing down their robes and they are putting palm branches on the road and the donkey that is carrying Jesus into the city is walking on the coats of the people and the palm branches that they are putting down on the road. So picturally, you can imagine this massive parade that is escorting Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. And so they do so not only with the palm branches on the ground, but John tells us that they are waving palm branches into the air. So palm branches are a symbol of victory and celebration. Now, palm branches were not a prescribed part of the Feast of Passover. It was a prescribed part of the Feast of Tabernacles, but many assume that this is a continuation of a part of the festival celebration that was the result of Simon Maccabee, who during the intertestamental period between the closure of the Old Testament and the inauguration of the New Testament, who was the Simon of Maccabee, who was successful in freeing Jerusalem from the Syrians. And so as a part of this symbol of victory, and as a part of this celebration, as the people re-entered the city of Jerusalem, after Simon of Maccabee had set it free, they waved palm branches as a symbol of victory and celebration. So perhaps the people remembering this celebration event did the same thing because they believed that Jesus, the one who had raised Lazarus from the dead, the one who had performed other signs and miracles as no one could, the one who taught as no one had, is likely going to be the one who is going to enter into the city of Jerusalem and is going to free them from the oppressive rule of the Romans. So they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So not only are the palm branches a sign of victory and celebration, this term Hosanna is a term of acclamation and praise. It literally means save now, I pray. So every Jew would be familiar with the term Hosanna. It comes from the group of psalms known as the Hallel. The Hallel is a collection of psalms, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. And these were sung every morning of these three major feasts by the temple choir. And so the people were very familiar with the term Hosanna and what it meant. The phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is taken from Psalm 118.26. And so this term Hosanna affirms that the people believed that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. They throw out these palm branches, they wave them in the air, they are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, because they believe that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. They add to that the phrase, the King of Israel, which means they are now ready for him to take his seat on the throne. They are ready for him to overthrow the Romans They are ready for him to ascend to a political and a military rule 
to restore power and independence back to the nation of Israel. And so as Jesus comes into the city, it appears that he is in some way accepting this form of coronation. Up to this point, Jesus had rejected earlier attempts to coronate him as king. We read in John 6, 14 and 15, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So now he accepts their coronation, not as a military ruler and not as a political ruler, but now he is a spiritual deliverer. Very different from the intent of the people, Jesus, knowing the plan of God, accepts their coronation, not as the military and political leader, but as the intended spiritual deliverer of the nation of Israel. Jesus did not share in the exuberance of their celebration. He knew of the cross that stood before him. He knew of the superficial allegiance of the people who were heralding him as their king. He knew of the people's ultimate rejection of him as the Messiah. It's recorded for us in Luke 19, verses 41 to 44, Jesus' very keen understanding of what was taking place. It says, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace... But now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Many assume that this is the prophecy of the fall of Jerusalem, that would come at around A.D. 70. But this prophetic word that comes from Jesus foreshadows the punishment that was going to come to the nation of Israel because they had rejected their Messiah. So the same crowd that welcomes him into the city with great exuberance, with the hope and a desire and an intention to coronate him as their king, in just a few short days is going to shout, crucify him, because he didn't do what they expected or they wanted him to do, and that is become their military and political ruler. So the third key element of this account of Jesus coming into Jerusalem in his triumphant entry is this. It came in the predicted manner. The very first part of verse 14 says, Jesus finding a young donkey sat on it. So it comes in the predicted manner of Jesus on a donkey's colt. Now the other Gospels provide for us detail that John chooses not to include. And so as a part of this detail, Jesus sends two of his disciples into a village and he instructs them and says, as you enter into this village, you're going to find a donkey and its colt its coat, excuse me, its colt, tied up to a post, and you are to take that 
donkey and that colt, and you are to bring it back to me. And so the disciples obey him. They enter into this village, and they find this donkey and the colt exactly as Jesus describes. And as they are untying it, with the intent of bringing it back to Jesus, the owners come out and say, what are you doing? And all they say is, the Lord has need of it. And they say, oh, okay, well, go ahead and take them. We can only assume that these individuals were followers of Jesus. And as such, perhaps God prompted them to expect for someone to come and ask for the donkey and the colt, and you are to give it to them because I am in need of it. And so this is exactly what takes place. And so they bring the colt and the donkey back to Jesus. They take off their coats and they cover the donkey and the colt with it. And Jesus climbs upon the back of the colt, and then they make their way into Jerusalem. So you ask the question, well, why did Jesus enter in on the colt and not on the donkey? Well, because this was the intended manner that Jesus was to enter into Jerusalem. It was to fulfill prophecy. We see this prophecy referenced here in verses 14b and 15. We read, as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So that phrase, fear not, daughter of Jerusalem, is found in Isaiah 40, verse 9, and it refers to the city of Jerusalem. We see a continuation of this prophecy and a verification of the daughter of Zion being referenced as Jerusalem, as we read Zechariah 9, 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so this predicted manner by which the Messiah was going to enter into Jerusalem, prophesied through Zechariah, was known by the priests, it was known by the people, But they missed the clear signs. Even though they knew of this prophecy, and even though they had seen the miracles that Jesus had performed, and as they heard him teach like no one could, they missed that Jesus was going to come in to bring salvation, not to bring military deliverance. Now, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the religious leaders of the day completely missed the prophecy that the Messiah was going to come on a donkey. With all that they knew about Jesus' public ministry, those things that they could not deny, they still chose chose to reject them And so they missed the clear evidence that Jesus was, in fact, who he claimed to be, entering into Jerusalem. Now, he enters in on the colt of a donkey, not on a powerful horse, which may have communicated military rule or military might, but he comes into the city in one of the most humble ways you could, riding on the back of a donkey's colt, and just as he entered into the world in the most humble of means to a poor girl and a poor husband born 
in the barn, Jesus now comes into the city riding on the back of a donkey's colt. Now, the fourth element we see in this triumphant entry is number four. It puzzled the disciples. Verse 16, these things the disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So they didn't understand. The disciples didn't understand all that was going on, the significance of what was happening. Jesus' own men missed the signs. It is very probable that Jesus' own disciples expected and desired that Jesus was going to enter into, into Jerusalem and overthrow the Roman, Roman rule and was going to be seated on the throne and restore the nation of Israel back to its former glory. They expected a conqueror. And after his resurrection, they still didn't fully understand. Acts 1.6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? So as he's entering into Jerusalem, they're expecting Jesus to become the military political ruler. After he has been raised from the dead, they're asking, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They didn't understand that that wasn't Jesus' purpose. It wasn't his mission to restore the nation back politically and militarily, but he was coming as a spiritual deliverer. It wasn't until after Jesus' ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to the 120 who were gathered in the upper room would they then begin to really understand I think there should be some encouragement that these disciples who had seen all that Jesus had done and heard all that he had taught still didn't fully understand. We don't always get it either, do we? We have a completed revelation from God to man in the entirety of the Bible, and we still don't always get it. But we aren't left alone. Just as the Holy Spirit was poured out, at the day of Pentecost, into the hearts of those believers, we today also are filled with that same indwelling Holy Spirit who has come to teach us and lead us into all truth. We read in John fourteen twenty six, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So if we will walk in obedience, if we will seek and if we will listen, then he will disclose more to us and we will understand more than we understand now as the Holy Spirit continues to do the work he was sent to do in helping us understand all that Jesus has done, all that Jesus has said, and how we make application of that into our lives today. We don't always understand why God is doing it or what God is doing at the moment, but we can simply trust Him and we express this trust by following Him and by seeking to understand what it is He chooses to reveal to us through the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit within us. Now, lastly, in our outline number five, 
This triumphant, this triumphant entry angered the Pharisees. These final three verses, 17 through 19. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. So in the midst of this large crowd of people who were still telling the story of Lazarus's miraculous raising from the dead, we see that the Pharisees are furious. The people were excited about Jesus, his entry into Jerusalem. If he could raise Lazarus from the dead, surely he could overthrow the Romans and set us free. In a few days, when they see him on trial before Pilate, They will conclude that he was an imposter, not able to do what he said he was going to do, what we thought and hoped he was going to do. And the Pharisees, who will be instrumental in turning the people against Jesus, are so enraged that the people are coming to him in the way that they are. If you can imagine, in a normal Jewish feast... There are a million of people who are busy coming and going and milling around. But here they see this massive parade, thousands upon thousands who have gathered to see Jesus. And they are just beside themselves with anger. And they say, the whole world is going out to see him. Obviously, it's hyperbole. Not all of the million or so people are going out there, but these huge throngs of people are going to Jesus and they are thoroughly frustrated. They have had enough. They want to put an end to this. But it is their unintended prophecy that Jesus would, in fact, have followers from all over the world as God's eternal plan of redemption, consummated, In Jesus' entry, in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the gospel message would go out into the remotest parts of all of the world, the Gentile world, not just the nation of Israel. So Jesus' entry into Jerusalem comes at the proper time. His coming has drawn thousands upon thousands of seemingly passionate followers, his coming is just as it was predicted on the back of a donkey's colt. It puzzled his disciples who didn't fully understand, and it enraged the Pharisees who were just going to reject everything about Jesus. But this comes at the Passover. Passover to the Jew is Easter to the Christian. The physical deliverance that was commemorated in the Passover is the same celebration that you and I have spiritually with Easter. Spiritual deliverance from sin that is marked in Jesus' coming as God's plan of redemption is about to be fulfilled. Well, as we think about this very familiar story, In all of the elements that are a part of that, we must always remind ourselves that it came at the predetermined plan of God to bring about spiritual deliverance.
for the people that God would call to himself. And so we celebrate with great enthusiasm Jesus coming, even though we know it would end in his death on the cross. But that isn't the end. We, we know of the victory of his ascension and the resurrection and the complete spiritual victory that it provides for us today. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Well, Father, we give you thanks for this familiar reminder of Jesus' victorious entry into the city of Jerusalem to bring about your plan of redemption. What that means for us today is that we've been set free from the sin, from the curse of sin and death, that we have thrown the yoke and the bondage of sin off of our backs, that we have been joined with the Son to the Father through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we have great excitement and great reason to celebrate who you are, what you've done, as we think about this memorable event in the nation of Israel as Jesus comes into the city. God, we thank you for the victory that is ours in Christ. We thank you that we have so much to look forward to, so much hope, so much confidence as we await for your second coming which will bring all of your people to you for all of eternity. God, we give you thanks, and as we continue to journey into the Gospel of John, we pray that you would give us greater clarity and understanding as we see the teaching that he is going to share with his innermost circle, and may you help us understand that in our time of study. We thank you. We love you. We give you all the praise and all the glory. Through the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.